I want you to think back to a time in your life when you were completely devastated. A time when you thought maybe the Lord was leading you in a particular direction and everything seemed to be going your way and then suddenly the door slammed and nothing that you thought went according to plan. Maybe you got a phone call with bad medical news or an email with news of job layoffs or a letter in the mail that absolutely changed your life. What do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? Or even worse, what do you do when the Lord seems to have left you, when it feels as though God is silent and distant from you? For me, this happened a number of years ago, when I was in Israel leading a group On one particular night, Han and I were in our hotel room. We were getting ready for bed when I opened up my phone and checked my email and I got some bad news, some unfortunate news. We were staying again in a hotel just off the shore, off the coast of the Sea of Galilee and the very next morning, uh, we woke up and I had to preach a sermon on the Sea of Galilee from this very passage. But I was devastated I barely slept that night. I tossed and turned all night. And if if emotions were my guide, which thankfully they're not, I may have just quit and walked away from the ministry altogether because I thought that the Lord was doing something and then the door slammed shut. And so there on the Sea of Galilee, the captain of the boats stopped the engine and he handed me the microphone And everybody looked at me expecting me to preach. To be honest with you, I wasn't in the best place emotionally or spiritually to give a sermon, but it's not like I could postpone it, right? I had to put my big boy pants on and preach even though I didn't feel like it. But what do you do when things don't go according to plan? I want you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14 as we continue this series of joy in the journey, taking a look at some of my favorite passages in the life and ministry of Jesus. As you're turning there to Matthew chapter 14, here's a few things I want you to take note of. First of all, we're entering into the point in the gospel of Matthew where Jesus is beginning to prepare his disciples for his departure. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus knows that his time has come and he is beginning to prepare his disciples for his ultimate departure, his death, resurrection, and ascension. He's beginning to instruct his disciples of how to carry forward the ministry in light of the fact that he will be leaving them soon. And here's the thing, it's not going to be easy for the disciples. They're not going to like it. It's going to be extremely challenging for them. But here in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for that. He's going to show them so that they can see the Savior in the storm. Three things we're going to see together this morning there on your outline. First, we're going to take a look at the setting. Matthew 14, 22 through 26. Through 26. Second, we'll take a look at the sinking, verses 27 through 30. And then finally, we'll take a look at the Savior in verses 31 through 
33. First thing I want you to see is the setting. Let's take a look at number one on your outline. And actually, I want to read for you verse 13 first. Matthew 14, 13 says this. Now, when Jesus heard about John, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat. Notice that word withdrew. He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Again, at this point forward in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is beginning to withdraw. He is beginning to pull back in order to prepare his disciples for his ultimate leaving. So we see the repetition of this word, withdraw, from this point forward throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And here it says in verse 13, when Jesus heard about John, John the Baptist had just been murdered by Herod Antipas. The beginning of chapter 14 gives us the details of how Herod Antipas murders John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. This is a heavy text emotionally, by the way. So to lighten it up a little bit, I love the quote from A.T. Robertson who says this, it's better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. Better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. But truly, the emotion of this text is heavy. John the Baptist has just been murdered. Tensions are rising between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus knows that his time has come. And so he's beginning to withdraw. But he's withdrawing in order to prepare his disciples to carry on his mission for when he is gone. He's preparing his disciples for his ultimate departure. And to do that, he's temporarily withdrawing from them now. Notice verses 22 and 23. Immediately, this is after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he sent the crowds away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, notice, he was there alone. Take note of that word immediately that begins verse 22. We're going to see that word immediately three times here in our verses this morning. It's an important word in this passage. Immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, those, Jesus sends his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He sends the crowds away and he himself goes up on the mountain alone to pray. Jesus makes the disciples or literally compels the disciples to get into the boat to head onto the Sea of Galilee. He intentionally sends them away. All of this is a part of his plan, by the way. So immediately, Jesus sends away the disciples. He goes up on the mountain, and then notice what happens. Meanwhile, while Jesus is up on the mountain alone praying, meanwhile, verse 24, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, notice this, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So Jesus is up on the mountain alone. 
The disciples are out on the boat alone. They're struggling in the boat, fighting against the storm. They're a long distance from the land several hours later, and they are terrified. Again, notice some details here that I want you to take note of. First of all is the location. Notice where the disciples are. They are a long distance from the land. John chapter 6 tells us that they'd gone three to three and a half miles from the shore. That's the location. Number two, the second thing I want you to see is the time. Matthew tells us that it was the fourth watch of the night. Now in verses 22 and 23, we saw that Jesus sent them away in the evening, but now it's the fourth watch of the night, which is three to six a.m. In other words, the disciples have been here on the boat, on the Sea of Galilee, in this storm for six, nine, maybe even 12 hours, fighting, struggling. The third thing I want you to note is the conditions that they're in. Matthew tells us that they were being battered by the waves and the wind was contrary. The word for battered is an intense word. In other places, it's used to describe demonic activity and many commentators believe that the storm here on the sea is being caused by demonic activity oppressing the disciples here as they're fighting and struggling in the storm. And the fourth thing I want you to notice are the emotions. Verse 26, they're terrified. Seeing Jesus, they think he's a ghost. And they cry out in fear. Listen, these guys are tired. They're physically exhausted. They've been up for a long time. They're ready for bed. They're perhaps even facing demonic activity. They're scared. This is all the setting. Things are not looking good for the disciples. Jesus is away. And they're alone on the boat. Or so it seems. I bet you they wanted to quit. But all of this you have to keep in mind is part of Jesus' plan for them. He compelled them to go in the first place. He's preparing them for his ultimate departure. This is set up, this entire scene is set up by the Lord Jesus. Now in terms of application for us this morning, there's a few things I want to highlight. The first thing I want you to see here is that the disciples are being obedient. Jesus said, go to the other side of the sea, and they got in a boat and they went. And yet, they're suffering because of it. And so just because we're obedient to the Lord Jesus does not mean that we can't expect opposition. In fact, the opposite is often true, that if we're obedient to the Lord Jesus, we can expect opposition to come, amen? But notice that there on the boat, the disciples, I'm sure, felt as though they were all alone. But Jesus comes to them walking on the water. They thought it was a ghost, not realizing it was him. The whole time, Jesus was either praying for them or he's physically with them. They just don't see it. 
Notice again, verse 25 says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Walking on the sea is present tense. And one of the things I like to do, if as I go through uh, narrative scripture, uh, the gospels and things like this, I like to imagine in my mind what this would look like if I were making it into a movie. If I were directing this scene into a movie, You've got to keep in mind there in the imagination of your mind that the storm is still raging. The storm is still moving on, gaining more and more intensity, and yet here is Jesus calmly walking on the water, walking on wave after wave after wave, coming to his disciples. They don't see it. They think he's a ghost. But truly, as we saw last week, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Here we see Jesus, who is the Lord, who has authority even over the storm. I love what one commentator says here about the disciples. All they could think of was their danger. All they could feel was their fear. But Jesus had not forgotten the disciples. He came to them through the very danger that threatened to destroy them. He came to them through the very danger that threatened to destroy them. All right, so that's the setting. Notice what happens next as we take a look at number two on your outline, the sinking. Matthew chapter 14, verse 27 says this, but immediately, there's that word again. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Again, take note of that word immediately. Again, after hours and hours of fighting on the sea in the midst of being physically exhausted, ready for bed, perhaps even facing demonic activity and fear, immediately Jesus speaks to them saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Literally, take courage, I am, do not be afraid. Jesus gives courage and calms fears. Those are the two commands. And how does he do it? By a reminder of his presence with them. That phrase, I am. It refers back to the Old Testament, the name of God, the ever-present one, the great I am. Jesus gives courage and calms fears by a reminder of his presence with them. Jesus was away, but he was still present with them. He was alone on the mountain, but he is still the ever-present one, even though the disciples didn't feel it. And notice the result that Jesus' presence has on Peter, verse 28. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now let's pause right there and give Peter a little bit of credit before we tear him down again. I mean, this is tremendous faith, albeit very brief. 
Last week we saw in Matthew chapter 8 that Jesus is the Lord over the wind and the waves. Who is this man, the disciples asked, that even the wind and the waves obey him? And here Peter believes that Jesus has the authority over the wind and the waves to even allow Peter himself to walk on the water. Give the guy a break. I mean, this is tremendous faith. But it doesn't last. Because notice verse 30. But seeing the wind... Peter became frightened. There's that word, frightened again. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter's faith gets sidetracked by worry, by fear. He sees the wind and its effect on the waves and he fears. Peter, the rock, begins to sink. Peter's brief, amazing faith sinks once he feels the fury of the storm. He starts thinking about the situation rather than the sovereignty of God. He begins to think about the perils before him rather than the peril of the one who told him to get out of the boat. And so Peter the rock begins to sink. But again, give him some credit because notice what he says. Beginning to sink, verse 30, he cries out, Lord, save me. He at least has the fortitude to call on the one who's able to save. Beginning to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. Have you ever been there? When you're drowning, and the only thing you can say is, Lord, save me. I've got nothing else. Lord, save me. If you've ever been there, you'll know that that's actually a very good place to be. And we come to the absolute end and we can do nothing but cry upon him and call out for his salvation. He's so desperate, all he can say is, save me. So we think about this in summary and application. I like what one commentator says. We'll never find ourselves in a place where Christ cannot find us. There is no storm too severe for him to not be able to save us from it. Life is often stormy and painful, often threatening and frightening. But in spite of that, the storm is never so severe, the night never so black, the boat never so frail that we risk danger beyond our Father's care. These are great words. These are comforting words to know that we're cared for, we're loved, we're protected by our Savior to whom we now turn as we look at number three on your outline, the Savior, Matthew chapter 14, verses 31 through 33. Notice Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, number three on your outline, the Savior, immediately. There's that word. Immediately. Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter the rock had begun to sink, but immediately, Matthew tells us, Jesus stretches out his hand and takes hold of Peter. Again, if you were making a movie out of this scene, I think the camera lens would focus in on the hand of Jesus reaching out and taking hold of Peter. That's all you see. And after stretching out his hand and taking hold of Peter, then Jesus asks, 
the question of conviction. And that's often how Jesus works. He leans in with compassion and comfort, and then he sticks you with a little bit of conviction. (laughs) And he asks Peter, why did you doubt? You have little faith. You know I'm the Lord over all things. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him, and yet you doubted? But then notice what happened. Verse 32, when they got into the boat, then the wind stopped. This whole time in your mind, the wind, the storm is raging on. It's only once Peter and Jesus get back into the boat that the wind stopped. This entire scene has now served its purpose, building up to what we see next in verse 33. After hours of struggling and fighting and being exhausted, the disciples finally see the Savior in the storm. Notice verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. All of this was building up to that declaration right there. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that the disciples cry out that Jesus is the Son of God. All of this leads up to the moment that the disciples, there coming through the storm, find themselves in a place of worship. What kind of a man is this, they asked in chapter 8? This is the Son of God. They're taken beyond amazement, to the point of worship. And that's the point. That's the lesson for the disciples. So as we take a step back and look at this entire passage, Matthew chapter 14, 22 through 33, what does it mean? What's the point of it all? I like what Dr. Pentecost says here. The point of all of this, this incident was designed by God, to reveal to these disciples that obedience to Christ does not remove all obstacles. This whole scene, Dr. Pentecost says, was designed by God to reveal to these men that obedience does not remove obstacles and that he is present with his own in their problems. He is present with his own in their problems. He's present with you in your problems. What's remarkable about this story is that Jesus possesses the authority over the storm the entire time, and yet he allows his disciples, in fact, he sends his disciples into the storm. He's the Lord of the storm, but he's also the Savior in the storm. And again, why? Why does Jesus allow his disciples for hours after hours after hours to struggle through the storm? It's ultimately to bring them to this place of worship. He's teaching them to see the Savior in the midst of the storm. He allows the disciples to suffer in the storm so they see the Savior in the storm. A few specific applications for us from Warren Wearsby that I think are good words, encouraging words. Three lessons we can take away from this passage. Number one, he brought me here. He brought me here. In other words, even there in the storm, the disciples are in the will of God and they're safer in the storm, in God's will, than on land and out of God's will. That's the first lesson. The second lesson from Warren Wiersbe is that he is praying for you. 
While the disciples are in the boat, Jesus is up on the mountain praying. And even now, in the midst of our storms in life, Jesus is our great intercessor praying for you. And the third lesson Warren Wearsby highlights here is that he will come to you. Sometimes we feel as though God has deserted us when in fact he uses these types of experiences to bring us closer to him. Another application that I want you to see here in this passage is Jesus' compassion and authority that are on display. We see his compassion for his disciples and we see his authority over the wind and the waves. And the beautiful news, the good news, is that Jesus is both compassionate and able to save. In other words, he wants to save and he actually has the power to do it. This is especially true when it comes to our problem of sin. God sent his son in compassion. He wants to save. And praise be to God, Jesus is able to save because of his death and resurrection. So listen, for everybody here, for those watching online, if you've not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I want you to see here that he is able and willing to save. For all who trust in him, in his compassion, he wants to save you. In his authority, he actually does it. That's the good news of the gospel. So this is Matthew 14. It's a great story. It's a comforting story. Kind of. It's a great story. It's a true story. And it's really good until you're the one in the boat. It's a real comforting account until you're the one in the boat. But what do we really do in those times in life when the waters are rough and you're drowning? Let me take you back to my trip to Israel where I was preaching on this passage there on the Sea of Galilee. Again, the night before, I had gotten some devastating news. I didn't get much sleep. I was discouraged, disappointed, frustrated. I felt a little bit as though God had abandoned me. And even worse, I felt a little bit like God was playing a trick on me. Have you ever been there? You think this is all just some kind of cosmic joke and God is up there kind of laughing at you, mocking you? That's how I felt. And then I had to get up and preach a sermon on a boat on the Sea of Galilee on this very passage about trusting God in the midst of the storms of life. And so there I asked a very simple question that I want to ask you this morning. How immediate do you think immediately felt to Peter? Three times we see that word immediately. But how immediate do you think immediately felt 
to Peter because I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when immediate doesn't feel all that immediate, right? I'm waiting on the Lord's timing. I'm waiting on God to do something, to fulfill his promise, to show himself good, but I'm sitting around waiting and I just wonder for the apostle Peter Peter there on that day. I wonder how immediate, immediately felt to Peter. The text says in verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And I don't doubt that at all. I just wonder how immediate, immediately felt to Peter. And I'm sure you've been there too. When you got that email with the diagnosis or the phone call telling you someone has died, or you get called into your boss's office and told you don't have a job anymore. You feel like you're drowning. You're waiting on the hand of the Lord to rescue you. You're waiting for the immediately to come. But the immediate doesn't feel all that immediate. For me on that day in Israel, during that boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, I did not feel as though the Lord had stretched out his hand immediately. And there on the boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, preaching from this very passage, I was holding back tears, wrestling with the timing of God. I had thought these years ago that the Lord was calling me to be the senior pastor of a very prominent church in the country. And everything seemed to be headed in that direction, that I was gonna be the senior pastor at one of the most prominent churches in the United States, and then immediately the door slammed shut. And for years, I wrestled with why. What is the Lord doing? And it's only now, years later, that I can look back and see that God was preparing me for Grace Bible Church. And to tell you the truth, there's no other place that I'd rather be than here. But it took years for the immediately to come. What I want you to see in this passage is that Jesus allows his disciples to go through this storm for hours and hours and hours. He allows them to fight and struggle, to get exhausted, to reach the point of nearly giving up, and then immediately he steps onto the scene. Here's what I want you to see here. It's not about escaping the storm. It's about seeing the Savior in the storm. It's not about escaping the storm and making life easy. It's about bringing you to the place where you see the Savior in the storm because in this life, escaping the storm might not come. But in the midst of all, where God is bringing us is to that place of worship where we see the Savior even in the storm. There at the bottom of your outline, you have some application questions for this week and we moved the one thing to the very top. And so if you have time for nothing else, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself, how is God asking you to trust him in the immediately of your life? Or right now, if everything's going your way and everything's great for you, then is there someone who is going through a period of immediately to whom you can minister as we wait 
on the salvation of the Lord to come. Because I know that for some of you in this room, life is tough right now. There are people struggling with marriages, with kids, with finances, with relationships. Life often feels as though you're drowning. It might even feel as though God has left you. But what Matthew 14 teaches us is that we have a compassionate and authoritative Savior. He may not prevent the storm, but he's the Lord over it. He's gonna see you through it. He's gonna carry you through it. It's not about escaping the storm. It's about seeing the Savior in the storm. So that as a result, we might, like the disciples, ask the question, who is this man? What kind of a man is this? And that we, like the disciples, might be brought to the place of saying, truly this is the Son of God. And that's what Matthew 14 is about. Let's pray. Father, thank you. As hard as it is to thank you, we thank you for the storms in our life that you use to bring us to a greater realization of who you are. The storms in our life that you use to open our eyes so that we might see the Savior in the storm. And Father, we know that ultimate deliverance might not come in this life. There are some who will struggle every day until either, Lord, Jesus, you return or until we meet you the other side of death. So help us in the struggle to trust that you're good. Help us in the struggle, in the storm to wait on your timing. Help us to see the Savior and the storm. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.